Should we do a ceremonial clap even for all the difference it ever makes <laughs> to me trying to sync everything up? Yeah. Right. One, one two, two, three. Close enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Solid. Hello. Welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's a film podcast with me, Peter Simpson, Jamie Dunn. Hello. And Annie Burrows. Hello. We've got a big show today with many good things in it. Uh, we're going to talk about the worst person in the world. We're going to talk about Glasgow Short Film Festival. We are going to hear from the directors of Glasgow Short Film Festival via a voice note that they sent us. <laughs> and we're going to, I am going to talk about Wallace and Gromit later on. That'll just keep you interested for now. It's the highlight. Yeah, if you feel like things are uh, flagging at any point, just remember, they're coming. <laughs> uh, Jamie, what have you been watching in the last wee while? Well, I was going to set this out because I have just been watching basically short films and films at Glasgow Film Festival, so I feel nothing to contribute. No no kind of popular culture has been consumed in the last two weeks by me, unfortunately. Well, it's going great so far. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I went to a play. Excellent. What play did you go to? Uh, the Scent of Roses. Oh, the Lyceum one. Yeah, that looks good. Yeah, I don't like it. Okay, so. well. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Anahe, have you seen anything that you either did or didn't like? I did. Um, I have seen Batman three times in the last eight days. Uh, I regret nothing, like zero. That's I, nine hours of movie watching. Yeah, it wasn't enough, you know? That's a full working day. <laughs> could have done, yeah, the best working day that you could possibly have. Yeah, I thought it was sick. I thought it was so fucking good, um, which is very ironic given our previous podcast episode where we just complained about superheroes for like... 25 minutes and yeah so I'm sorry to be such a little hypocrite but it's really good it's genuinely really good I loved it's like film noir aesthetic I loved the way that it was lit all of the silhouettes I thought it was gorgeous I thought he was great <laughs> oh my god his little like emo Batman thing was amazing um and I thought also it was very interesting given what we had been talking about last week that like you know, superhero films are just so divorced from the comics. To me, it actually felt very pulpy. Like, it felt very, um, like, certain shots, the way that it's, like, a lot of close-ups and then a lot of tableaus was very, like, mimicking comic panels, which I thought was really interesting. So, yeah, I had a great time. I kind of want to see it again, but I feel like that's no going too far. So maybe I'll give it a few days. Mm. But I might, <laughs> depending on how low my serotonin gets. Yeah. Depending on whether you've got three hours slot <laughs> free in the next couple of days. We'll see. Um, what have you been watching, Peter? I haven't seen The Batman again, but I did watch another comic book film. So they made two Ghost Rider films in the 2010s. The first one is dreadful. It sucks really bad. But the second one, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, was directed by Neville Dean Taylor, who did Crank. The absolute buckwild insanity of it is delightful. <laughs> Idris Elba does a French accent. It's not very good. It's not very good, but it's also great. Everyone should watch it. Yeah, we need to bring this back for uh, our Nicolas Cage uh, chat. Yeah. Which is where we're planning yeah, yeah, yeah. potential in the future spoil alert. And he's got the classic, like, old Nicolas Cage haircut, where it's like a receding hairline that recedes in, like, two different places, but then there's still, like, a good, thick mop through the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, um... God, what is that film? National Treasure. Yes. The National Treasure aesthetic. It's like that, but with a bit of a blowout. Amazing. Oh, it's, oh it's not good. <laughs> Which always confused me, because I feel that's a wig. But why does the wig have such a big receding hairline? 
a character. That's interesting. You, you think you, if you're going to have a wig, you'd actually have a normal hairline. You feel Nicolas Cage is always wearing a wig. I feel he's always wearing a wig. That, that is not real hair, is it? Come on. No, I don't know. I think oh. I just always assume that it is real hair. Um, like on, And then I saw a picture, I think it was Jimmy Stewart back in the day, because he had like a thick heck of hair head of hair um like throughout and then there was this one picture of him like in the 60s being like oh no that is not what he looked like and that was a real man behind the curtain moment for me so yeah maybe nicholas maybe everyone's lying to us so the worst person in the world has been a very buzzy film i think um the lead actor renata reinsve won the best actress award at Cannes last year and it's the new film by joachim trier basically follows a woman named Julie. She's a 30-year-old woman living in Oslo, kind of unsure about what she wants out of her life. The film's kind of structured in 12 chapters and a prologue and an epilogue, and it follows her as she kind of is like navigating through various like romantic relationships, family things, work, uh, expectations, worries, fears, dreams, etc. I'm going to ask Jamie what he thought of the film. Jamie, <laughs> what did you think of the film? Oh my god, I just take water. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's hard to hide around when Peter's talking. Like, I don't want to, like, have big gulps. <laughs> god, there's going to be a lot of outtakes in this episode. Yeah, I, it is really buzzing. I think the reason this is really chiming with people, and especially young people, is it's basically about somebody who is a bit overeducated and yet hasn't sort of found their way in life and has yet to settle down and get the plan together and get their shit together, basically. Which I think will resonate with a lot of kind of people in their 20s and 30s who are, I guess, having very different 20s and 30s to their parents who by now had probably settled down and sort of, you know, were a bit more kind of organised, you know. Um, so, yeah, like, and I love how this is, a, this is about a woman who's kind of keeps switching career paths, you know. Like, she started off, she wants to be a surgeon, and then she realises, actually, that's a bit mechanical. She wants to study the mind instead and be a psychologist. And then she realises, actually, I want to be a photographer because that's a better way to study people. And and then she meets a man who sort of changes her again. And it's she's constantly in flux. And what I love about the film, and I think what I like most about the film, is the film is a bit like her. It's a film that's split up into these little chapters which all have different sort of textures and tones and sort of styles. Yeah, so like, like her, the film is constantly shifting. And uh, yeah, I really love that. So like, it's, it's just full of these kind of wonderful kind of lyrical sequences where the camera just moves like a dream. And yeah, some are really funny, like an episode where they go on holiday, um, her and her boyfriend Axel, who's this guy who's a bit older, he's something in his 40s. She's just in her kind of late 20s, I think. And uh, yeah, they, they go with uh, these older couples and it's, it's, it's kind of farce, basically. But then there's other sequences which are super romantic. Um, there's sequences which are heartbreaking. Yeah, and I love how it's just constantly surprising you, like this character who is like, you know, she's full of surprises. Um, and it's funny talking about it in the same week as the Short Film Festival because I think basically these little vignettes can act as little short films, you know, and I think you probably have favourites. Some you like better than others. The absolute best one for me is a sequence where Julie, uh, who's uh, Renita Reins V's character, is that how you say her name? Yeah. <laughs> Roughly. Uh, yeah, she crashes this wedding reception and she meets this guy uh, who's different from our current boyfriend who's in her, his 40s and very get, uh, put together. The guy she meets is this kind of big lumbering guy who's completely different. And it's just like how they flirt over the night and try and not cross any boundaries because they don't want to cheat 
with their partners. But they basically do all these very intimate things together, and it's hilarious, romantic. But it also just really captures that atmosphere of being on a night out and sort of meeting someone and how the kind of night seems to stretch on forever, you know? And it's that kind of feeling of, yeah, you're the only two people in the world and you've kind of met for this kind of tiny moment in time and then you're going to go your separate ways. And then, yeah, it's full of moments like that which, which just kind of sort of surprises you and sort of captures sort of little moments of life. But yeah, maybe, maybe I should move on, Peter. What do you think? Well, one of the things that's really interesting about it is it feels very real and a lot of it feels quite like naturalistic, but it has these really like showy flourishes, but it all flows together really well. It's a kind of like dark comic romantic drama that also has like genuine moments of filmmaking where you genuinely will not know how they've made it and that's like a really interesting kind of dichotomy that you might not necessarily expect that these like weird odd but like really interesting like sort of experimental bits of like filmmaking there's one bit that i don't want to spoil but it's amazing and you won't be able to really work out what's happening at first and then if you're anything like me you'll just be like ah this is so mysterious. Can you tell us? Yes, I can. I'll cut it out. It's the bit where she pauses time and then it's like oh, walking yeah. through Oslo. Because yeah. I'm just, just like genuinely how mm. how I mean, have they done this? I mean, I think people just stand still. I don't think it's actually, it's actually quite simple, probably. <laughs> I, don't think, <laughs> I don't think you should cut this. <laughs> this is a great film. Yeah. yeah, I think it's just people standing really, really still. <laughs> and she's walking around. Well, I was impressed yeah. by it. It's basically like those... What, 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 was, the, what was the teen drama where... Uh, like somebody robbed a 50 pence piece. Oh, Bernard's Watch. <gasps> yeah. No, yeah. no, 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 no. You're thinking of the Queen's Note. Oh, the Queen's Note, You're yeah. thinking of Bernard's Watch, but which is what you meant. Did I mean that? Yes, yeah. you did. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Because, uh, because the Queen's Note sends you back in time, and that's Bernard's right. Watch yes, stops time. That's right. right. Oh, my God. So, okay. so it's basically just... Well, you know what? I was impressed. Maybe I'm just easily <laughs> impressed. I thought it looked great. Oslo looks really great in this film, and this film's a brilliant advert for living by the water, because what else are you going to look at when you're having a personal moment of introspection? <laughs> like, a hedge? The woods? Some buildings? No. You look out at the water, and you ponder your life at various different points in that life, and you have a little cry. There you go. So yeah, Oslo looks great, film looks great. Renata Reinsvig's performance is, I thought, really great, really believable, very kind of like lived in, you kind of... I absolutely buy that character and the kind of progression of it over the time. I loved it. Annie, what did you think? So I also love this film. I think it is so perceptive, it's so graceful, it's obviously very beautifully made and it's almost like literary in kind of its structure of the chapters and also this kind of play it has with this idea of like an ethical identity formation. Like it feels like a kind of callback to sort of the realist novel, but like updated for now, which I think is really interesting. I would um, like to address a point (laughs) that is slightly contrarian, but I think it is like worth discussing. That is not necessarily a criticism of this film, but perhaps like more broadly, this idea of how we conceptualize and present these stories about women. So, Renata Reinsfeld is obviously so, so good. She's sweet and shifting and her performance, like you say, it's so like worn in and lived in. But she also very much fits the mold of like white, thin, attractive, middle class. And so often when we think about these stories, they're kind of like, you know, we have things like Fleabag and there is like this kind of big boom of them at the moment. Um, These films and like stories about women being lost and messy and difficult really like their stories about female difficulty we still tend to think about them in terms of femininity that are palatable 
to us. Um, I think you could almost like distill this film into like there are these two hot guys that fancy her and obviously it is a bit deeper than that and it's a lot deeper than that like I do realize that but like I think essentially when we're kind of thinking about this idea of like ambivalence and the force of female desire and desirability it's just very normative and I think that would be fine if it weren't the only story that we have about these things um I've been thinking about it a lot in comparison to Paul Thomas Anderson's um, Licorice Pizza, like in my head, like over the last few weeks. Um, and obviously Alana Haim is also kind of like white and thin and like various things like that as well. But I think that film kind of plays with ideas of attractiveness and different ways. Like her desire in the film is like much more prickly. Um, and I think for me that made it a more effective examination of the politics of female desire. Because I think a lot of what this film is about is Yulia kind of forming herself around the male gaze and around being wanted by men. And I think that actually as an experience is not a very pretty one and it is quite frustrating and it is quite ostracizing. And yeah, I just like to see films that kind of deal with that, that like think about desirability beyond attractiveness or sexuality beyond having sex all the time. Mm. And it's just something that kind of struck me about it. And it's not to say that I don't love it. And it's not to say that I don't think it's a really, really beautiful film. It is, I think, just more of a comment on, yeah, broadly the genre with which we tell these stories. It still feels quite limited. Um, yeah. No, I totally agree. Like, she is, like, basically a manic Scandi dream girl. You know, if you, <laughs> if you want to use the phrase of, like, you know, she isn't that different. This film isn't 100% different from something like 500 Days of Summer, you know, I think that's why it's actually taken off. There is certain elements to it which do remind you of kind of like Hollywood's rom-coms, you know, that's sort of why people like it. And I think it is spikier and more interesting than those types of films, but that's kind of why I think it has been so popular because it reminds you of things you've seen before. It's maybe just a more elevated, more interesting look at it. Um, and it's always interesting to me what, why, what foreign films sort of take off, you know, like, for example, Drive My Car. Like, I'm amazed that that has done so well because it is, like, a really punishingly long film. Um, but I can totally see where this is taken off because it's sp sparky and lovely. Um, but I do agree. I, what I found, if I was going to be contrarian as well, and like I say, I agree, I love this film, but I do think the main character is a little bit underwritten. And I think it's the fact that um, Renata Reinsvey's performance is just so great and so charismatic. I think you can maybe overlook that a little bit. Because I was thinking at the end, what do I really know about this woman? And I know part of the fact is she doesn't know herself, so she's she's still scrambling for her career, but you should just have to know her personality. And I was kind of thinking of an, another film a bit like this, like Frances Ha um, with Greta Gerwig. Like, even, like she's in a similar situation where she doesn't have her job sorted out, her life sorted out, she doesn't even have a place to live sorted out. But I kind of know that character. I can, I can tell you the type of books she likes to read or the music she likes or the film she likes. Whereas I found this character was a bit slippery and sort of a bit cypherish, you know, and I think too often she's maybe just related to, she's her personality is related to the men in her life, and I feel like the film could have been really improved if, say, there was like a kind of friend, you know, a confidant who she could speak to, so you could see her outside of relationships, you know, see her in the context of work, uh, or um, in the context of like a friendship, you know, and maybe get a second side to her because I feel like yeah, as it is. I just don't, she's a bit unknowable, you know? Yeah, and I think in a way, I think for me that was almost the point in that she is only known through her relationships because she only really understands herself 
through her relationships. And so I think that almost made a bit more sense to me. I think the thing that I found, yeah, like you say, like a little bit difficult about it is that if you place yourself in that like quite vulnerable position where you are just like defining yourself through men, it is a vulnerable position to be in. And that doesn't mean that you're going to get two very dreamy guys who are very, very in love with you. And that's just going to like keep spiraling. Like it is going to fall apart sometimes, I think, in other ways. And I think it was more that for me, like it kind of, it did almost make sense that she doesn't have a lot of female friends um, within. And I know what you mean about like, yeah, do we know that much about her? And I think often the things that we know about her are almost through absence. So like this absence of like friendship and like this, these other parts of her life. Um, but yeah, it just felt a little bit, whereas, yeah, like, again, not to bring up licorice pizza, but like with that, you know, like it ends, she's so desperate to be wanted in that film that what does she do? She like has this like strange little relationship with a 15 year old boy. And then with like various men who like, she so wants to be seen. And like, you know, you have Sean Penn's like Hollywood star who like ends up accidentally throwing her off a bike and like all of this stuff. And she keeps trying and they just can't like reflect her back at herself and I felt yeah this maybe didn't go quite far enough with that um but which is all to say like I think it is still yeah like really good I don't want it to sound like super critical and I think there is yeah a space for these films and you know for me like five I really like 500 days of summer um and I think it is also a very good film about the pitfalls of kind of that gender dynamic of wanting the and like wanting and being wanted essentially um but yeah it is I think it is just a cumulative thing that we have now just seen so many of these stories and I'm just like all of these women look the same yeah. and they're all kind of acting the same and where is this going to go yeah I should say that's not necessarily criticism actually mm. really that film as well but yeah I think it's I think this film does go deeper like like I think actually the last sort of 20 minutes are mm. great and I don't want to spoil uh, anything but you know a character who maybe we sort of maybe haven't sympathised with up until that point sort of changes us on a dime and, and, it, and it changes the character um, that Renata plays as well so this film has got depths I think but I would have liked to see a bit more depth in the character and, and I agree that that maybe is just by design the character mm. it doesn't know herself so we can't know her but yeah I think there could have been some some sort of semblance of her in there somewhere but anyway that was, that was just my thought but yeah I agree it's a great film moves brilliantly the filmmaking is excellent and um, Wahine Trio is super talented I haven't seen have any of you seen his other any of his other films no I haven't yeah I haven't yeah. either he's got, been a bit up and down like in terms of success like I really like his the, the, the ones the films that are considered the Oslo films like a uh, reprise in Oslo uh, 31st August I think it's called um, which are a bit different but you know they're all set about young people living in Oslo and trying to find their way uh, he made an American film, Louder Than Bombs, which I really liked, but kind of got slagged off a bit. And then he made um, Thelma, which it, I didn't see, but again, it didn't have a great reception. But it seems like this is the film that might sort of really elevate his career. He's been winning awards. I can see him getting lots of offers from Hollywood. Like I say, this is very kind of stylish and Hollywood, Hollywoodish. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he, he does another, has a more successful English language film after this. Um, but yeah, just super talented guy. If he was going to direct a Marvel film, Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Mark Webb, who directed 500 Days of Summer, directed Spider Man. So, Spider-Man, yeah. uh, so I could see him maybe taking over the, the Spider Man, uh, the new Spider Man genre, uh, and sort of, you know, making it a bit, bit more romantic and fun. Uh, that'd be cool. 
That would be cute. But also hopefully he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> Truly, a cursed idea. Let's <laughs> let's see if that seed grows into anything. Um, yeah, so Worst Person in the World is out on the 25th. So a week on Friday, if you listen to this, the week it comes out. And it's on Mubi from sometime in May, I believe. I think it's May or June. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Glasgow Short Film Festival, which runs from the 23rd to the 27th of March. Lots of short films of varying length and origin. We're going to talk about some of our favourites from a kind of quick look at the Scottish short film competition. We've also got uh, Matt Lloyd and Sana Yahul from GSFF are going to tell us a bit about what they think makes a good short film and we're going to talk about some of our more general favourite short films. But first, we're going to talk about the opening film, which is actually quite a long short film. So it's a medium-sized film, I would say. It's a full hour. It's it's more than an hour long. (laughs) Short films. Uh, So it's a film called The Timekeepers of Eternity by Greek director Aristoteles Maragos, who has kind of taken this... Stephen King miniseries from the 1990s and really transformed it into something new by compressing the runtime down from three hours to 60 minutes and turning it into this kind of like hypnotic and odd black and white animation that's filled with really over-the-top acting, bad accents, uh, supernatural shenanigans, interesting kind of animation artifacts and various other weird and odd things. Jamie, you like weird and odd things. Did you like this weird and odd thing? I did like this weird and odd thing. I just love the idea of taking this kind of terrible TV disaster movie filled with bad acting and, you know, based not on a kind of particularly well-remembered Stephen King short story and, you know, taking something that's basically been forgotten and like lost to the cracks of cinema history and then kind of reimagining it in such a creative and surprising way I just thought it was, you know, thrilling, really. Um, so, yeah, the animator, what he's done is he's photo, he seems to have photocopied frames from the Stephen King TV miniseries. And he's kind of animated it like a stop-motion style. And initially, you know, these scene-by-scene or frame-by-frame uh, animations kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of quite simple. As the film goes on, it becomes layered, more layered. The kind of screen starts to split and you get flashbacks and, you know, it seems to relate somehow to the emotions of the character as they go through this kind of stress of this kind of weird situation where they're on a plane and um, everyone disappears. Even the cabin crew disappears and they have to kind of work out this mystery of what's going on. I assume the technique is inspired by one of the characters who's called Craig Tooney. Or Tooney, is it? Uh, who is this kind of stockbroker character who's desperate to get to Boston? That's all we know about him. He needs to be to Bo- in Boston by 9 a.m. And he's, his way of coping with his stress is to rip up paper. So it's almost like the film is from his point of view or inside his head somehow. Um, and it's an extension of his kind of psychosis or something like that. Um, but yeah, I just love how creative it is. Um, you know, it's, it's like it's got all the cliches of a Stephen King horror, uh, you know weird bad guys who may be coming to kill everyone, a mystery at the heart of it. Uh, Dean Stockwell, who's basically playing Stephen King, he's like this uh, crime writer who's basically the exposition machine in this whole thing. He tells us what's going on. He works out that they're stuck in some sort of time loop or they're back in time. I'm not actually even sure what what uh, was happening. It's, it's, all, it's all you just have to go with it. It's really fun, creative. Uh, what do you guys think? Uh, it reminds me, I'm about to hit 
people with an extremely specific Venn diagram. And if anyone understands what I'm talking about, please tweet at the skinny mag. <laughs> uh, so this reminded me of two things. One is the Nicolas Cage Christian Rapture movie Left Behind. Uh, I wrote down a quote from the Wikipedia article about Left Behind. Left Behind was universally lambasted by critics. It currently holds a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and it was a box office failure. Is this like based on the series of like very, very Christian YA books? Yes. Yeah, my very evangelical Christian school. Uh, it was one of the few books we had in the library. Like the whole Left Behind series. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was well, time. <laughs> the film ain't great. Let's put it that way. So the plot of Left Behind is that they are on a plane and then everyone on the plane gets raptured. So that's one half. And then the other half has really reminded me of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which is a kind of 2000s Channel 4 comedy series where the premise is a Stephen King-style horror writer has made a TV series that got kind of consigned to the vaults in the 1980s and is then kind of brought back with interstitial interviews from the cast, who are people like Rich Diawadi and Matt Berry and Matt Holness. This film, Timekeepers of Eternity, kind of recontextualizes that kind of like weird, pulpy, horror, sci-fi kind of stuff and takes a kind of weird, schlocky premise and smashes them together in this really like quite impressive, like like technically very interesting way. It feels like it was edited with a chainsaw. It's incredibly, like, the source material is incredibly overblown and, like, the things that are cut and the things that are emphasised sort of highlight that ridiculous, weird, odd energy that it has. And almost, like, taking out a lot of the kind of exposition means that even if this, the story probably didn't make any sense in the first place. So cutting out large parts of it really doesn't hurt anyone. It's like, <laughs> we've, got a, um, we've got a performance in here that is fully about seven levels up from anyone else. What should we do? Really accentuate it. Mess with the screen. Just tear up the whole, tear up the whole image, it'll be fine. And you know what? It is. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. But once you kind of go down the rabbit hole, once you get past the first five or ten minutes, you're like, oh, now I see what's going on. And then you get to another ten minutes, and you're like, oh, geez, what is going on? And it just kind of keeps snowballing on itself from there. But if anyone gets the left behind Garth Marenghi combo, then at me. <laughs> Annie, what did you think? <laughs> um, yeah, I thought this was dope. Um, I've never seen anything like it, like, ever before. Um, and now I wonder why we don't do it all the time. Like, there are a lot of very bad films that could be made better. Through, and I think that should be his lifelong project, is seeking out bad films and just making them good again. Oh, man, you could do it with just Stephen King films. There's so many. Yeah, like, yeah. In that 90s <laughs> period, The Stand, The Tommy Knockers, there was so many yeah. bad miniseries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, if, if you're listening, we have a project for you. Um, yeah, I think the really interesting and powerful thing about collage is it, like, destabilizes ideas of creative authority, right? Like, in probably the most direct and subversive way that you can. Like, obviously, all adaptations are kind of playing with that, but with collage, like, you're directly using and you're reforming material. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting thinking about it in the context of a Stephen King adaptation because we have this idea of him as, like, the authority on modern horror um, and, yeah, this authority on how to construct fear. And I haven't seen the original. So we should say the original is, like, a mini-series. Well, not even mini. It's, like, a two-part, like, yeah, three-hour thing um called the Langoliers um 
And yeah, I haven't seen the original, but the tightness of the editing and the absolute kind of eeriness and the fragmentation of the world and the way that the paper would like crumple and people's faces would warp and he would like layer things on top of each other. I can't really imagine it being much more like scary. Like it's so good. Um, and I did look up the Langoliers and cause there are like these, not to explore anything, but like vague kind of like creaturey things that we're not quite sure, blah, blah, blah. And they look really stupid in the nineties one. Like they do not look scary at all. But in this where they're like teared holes in paper and the paper's moving, it actually really works. Um, I also checked the ending of the original Langoliers and this one is way more fucked up. So yeah, I think it's really good. I was really impressed. And I feel, how often does it happen that you see a film and you're like, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before ever. Like ever, ever. Well, I was gonna say GSFF do have a have form in this because they have shown a lot of mashup type films before. But like in that collage, not way? quite in the collage, but um, for example, I don't know if you saw the Sodajek film. Uh, it's Terra Nullius. Um, it's like basically these two Australian artists and they're taking loads of Australian films and sort of mash them together. So you've got like Joey the Kangaroo mixed with Mad Max. And they create like oh a new God. film about Australian history, um, which is really interesting. Or a couple of years ago, they also showed the Guy Madden film, um, Green Fog, which took loads of films set in San Francisco and then edited them together to make basically Vertigo. Uh, so it's like this kind of, ma- it's not quite the same collage idea, but this kind of mashup idea of taking old material and kind of repurposing it is very much a kind of GF- GSFF trope you know it seems like they quite often like and they and these films are usually run about sort of an hour long uh, those both those films are about an hour long so yeah uh if you, i think if you like this you should definitely check out those ones as well. and really interesting as well in the context of like the ip war because there was a big thing in like music remixing and kind of like vj remixing for a while it was a few years ago now when that was really becoming a thing of like what does it mean to remix or re-edit something like where because some people would say oh well you're just taking Stephen this old Stephen King film and then like cutting it up and saying that you've made something but this is unquestionably like a transformative way of looking at something that already exists and turning it into something else and when kind of corporate intellectual property is getting locked down so much it's good to see projects like this that are actually able to take things from the kind of collective cinema history even if it's kind of the shit bits and like make something really good out of it mm-hmm. I, I mean imagine if somebody was able to do like a kind of re-edit of some of the marvel films to make them about the things that they're actually about rather than about the things that they say they're about or like batman versus superman is like the one that comes to mind and it's yeah. very long and very bad yeah that'd be great but what if you could cut it down to 20 minutes <laughs> and just focus on the fact that both their mothers are called martha <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole plot that is the entire plot and then the twist is same Martha <laughs> yeah there's also a thing oh used to, uh, I was say, the film's is, called same Martha <laughs> I was going to say this is also a bit like they used to do in the, uh, back in the day because back in the day before we had videotapes everybody at home had sort of they had to sort of show things on kind of 8mm but because 8mm was so short what you, if you wanted to show a film uh, you would have to have a, a, a kind of edited version of it, and that was a thing people would do. They'd show like horror films, but like a they'd take like a ninety minute horror film and show like a thirty minute version. And this is something GSFF have also done, where they showed things like uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon or uh, 
like Dracula, uh, you know, 30 minute versions of them. And it becomes really avant-garde because it takes out all the boring stuff basically and ha- keeps in all the kind of exciting, sexy uh, violence. Um, so yeah, there's, there is a kind of, I think there is a kind of like a, yeah, a legacy of this going back, I would say. And long may it continue. Bring us your bad films. <laughs> Bring us your bad films and some free editing software and we'll see what we can do. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so the, ta- this, the Timekeepers of Eternity, it's the opening film, Glasgow Short Film Festival 2022. It's on on the 23rd of March at Glasgow Film Theatre. So check it out. It's very good and very weird. So that was the opening film, The Timekeepers of Eternity. Glasgow Short Film Festival also has two competition strands. So there's the Bill Douglas Award, which is for international short films, and then there's the Scottish Short Film Competition. So we have each had a little rummage around in the Scottish Short Film Competition, which is playing in, I think, is it four p- different programmes over the course of the long weekend? Uh, and we've each pulled out one film that we're going to talk about to the rest of us and you. So, <laughs> Anna, podcasting. So, Anahi, what is your pick? Um, so, I picked Bahar by Maryam Hamidi, um, which is a film that takes place just after Nowruz, which is Iranian New Year which actually makes now a really lovely time to watch it because this Sunday is um, Iranian New Year. So it's all just like very lining up. Um, so Bahar means spring, but is also the name of the protagonist's daughter who died when she was a child. And we're not exactly sure what happened or why. And a few days after Nowruz, um, this woman's son, her husband's died um, and she lives in this kind of house, the family house by herself. Um, and her son, Navid, um, who is played by sex educations, Armin uh, Karima, comes home from university and then kind of like certain truths and tensions start to emerge. Um, there's a real sense of claustrophobia in this film that is just so well done. There's this like damp rot that's spreading through this woman's house um, and this unsettling presence of her daughter is like everywhere. Um, and the camera's like peering in from other rooms, like through kind of doors and like walls in between. Um, it's not quite a horror, but it is very much playing with these tropes. And I think what it really is, is like a very beautiful mediation on grief. And yeah, this idea of like spring as both like a moment of like decay and renewal. Um, I really also loved um, the code switching between like her and her son. They kind of speak. Farsi and English and it's all like so mixed up um, and it just sort of like you get this real sense of their like family dynamic um, just in those moments and obviously it is a very short film I think it's really like 14 minutes long um, but she just does so much with making it feel very worn in and you get like yeah just this real sense of this family that are like isolated from their culture from their kind of history and from each other and they're like caught up in this very liminal place of grief um, yeah, I thought it was really beautiful. I think it's um, Hamidi's first film. I think she mostly works as an actress, but I think this is her first like directorial um, endeavor, and I thought it was really beautiful. Good stuff. Sounds lovely. It was. Yeah. I mean, it was like scary and sad. But yeah. It was like. Really <laughs> <good>. <laughs> um, so that's on on Saturday the twenty sixth at six forty five at the CCA. Yes. Uh, the film that I have picked is shorter than that. Not that it's a competition. Um, <laughs> so it's a documentary by a filmmaker called Stephen Fraser. It's called Prosopagnosia, which is face blindness. And it's a really interesting, like quite experimental documentary about 
this filmmaker and his experience with prosopagnosia. He has these kind of tape recordings of his thoughts and his like experiences and the way that he kind of interacts with other people and the way that he feels about himself and the world. And that is the kind of thread that goes throughout the film. But he also has this amazing personal archive of all these kind of like cartoons and illustrations that he's made of like faces and of kind of like images of people and some of them are like partially completed and some of them are like fully rendered in this kind of like Frank Sidebottom-esque like big colours and big facial features uh, kind of aesthetic and it's all quite like it's one of it does a thing that a really good short film does where it takes just this moment of this person saying like I have these thoughts about this thing and it gives it the amount of space it needs and it tells a really kind of concise story of this guy's experience and how he kind of like interacts with the world. It also features a brilliant line where he says that one advantage of uh, having prosopagnosia is that you can just ignore people that you don't like if you see them in the street, which, I mean, you've got to find the joy somewhere. So yeah, it's a very interesting, like very, um, yeah, a very interesting way of telling that kind of story um, and really nice artwork and really kind of like really emotive like interview audio to go with it so yeah really interesting really good so prosopagnosia plays in the program of shorts that's on on sunday the 27th at 3:45. it's also on at the cca jamie what have you got for us yeah so my favorite film uh, that i found and i should say i, I just thought the quality was amazing overall but i really loved a documentary called the bayview by daniel cook um, so this is a observational documentary that takes us inside this kind of ramshackle but rather lovely hotel, uh, which is in this small fishing village in the northeast coast of Scotland uh, called Macduff. And this hotel has basically become a kind of haven for a huge collection of international fishermen when they come to land. And the reason this place is so important is because of our horrible home office, who don't let migrant workers uh, spend much time on shore. Um, despite the fact that migrant workers make up about a third of all the workforce in the UK fishing industry. So Bayview has become a kind of home away from home for all these fishermen from Ghana, Sri Lanka, uh, the Philippines, Eastern Europe. Um, and it's also got these kind of old codgers who live there as well, these kind of old sea dogs who you, you get the sense that they're retired but they've no place to go. So they've kind of made the, their home as well. Um, and at the heart of the film is this kind of absolute force of nature called Susie, who's this American woman who runs the place. I guess she's in her 60s or even older maybe and basically she's like a mother to all these itinerant workers who you know obviously are away from home for a long time so she gives them a place to stay she makes them very welcome um there's a brilliant scenes of her like cooking food for them you know there's uh, she's cooking food for these three guys from Ghana and it's clearly that she's making them dish that they want they've sort of given her a recipe and they're tasting it and says oh this is just right it's got the right amount of spice the right amount of garlic so like yeah, she's really just welcoming these people and make them feel at home. Um, another key player is Susie's adopted son, who's Tongan. And he basically assists her by dropping off food to the fishermen and things like that, and sort of helping out around the hotel. Um, and the fact that their mother and son actually only really is revealed very slowly, you just assume initially he's just working there. Um, but there's a really kind of moving and beautiful conversation towards the end of the film where... Susie's talking about what's going to happen to this hotel once I 
pass away. You know, who's going to look after the place? You know, while you do do it, and he's like, he's this kind of lumbering, quite shy. You know, if Susie's super outgoing and and uh, you know American in that way, he's like very shy and sort of. Yeah, he doesn't feel he could run the place. But then she explains that actually the fact that all these people from all these different cultures feel at home here is because he's a person of colour, you know? And the fact that he is a kind of resident and a kind of fixture in the hotel is actually why these people from, like, the Philippines and Ghana find at home. And, and he's the kind of connection, the connective tissue, which has turned this place from a hostel to, like, a home for these people. So, yeah, I just thought it was beautiful. Beautifully observational film. Um, it kind of reminded me about like a western, you know. I, I saw her as a bit like uh, like um, Joan, Joan Crawford and Johnny Guitar, you know, like running this saloon and all these people come from all over the place to, to live there. Yeah, so it's just yeah, a really beautiful film, which also kind of sticks to the Home Office and saying, you know, these people are not treated well. Thank God there's a place like this where people are kind of treated with a bit of dignity and sort of given sort of a space to sort of live, you know. So yeah, really sweet. Uh, movie. Sweet. And that film is on, it's in the second competition program, which is on on the Friday at 6.15. That's also at the CCA. It's Friday the 25th of March. Okay, now we are going to become some other people. So we asked Matt Lloyd and Sana Yahul from GSFF to have a wee chat about what they're looking for in their kind of like ideal short film and how Glasgow Short Film Festival comes together. So by the magic of editing, you are about to hear from them. So we'll be back shortly. Hi, Sana. <laughs> Hi, Matt. <laughs> so uh, what do we look for in a short film? What do we look for in a short film? It's, it's quite a broad question, isn't it? Because it, it can differ quite a lot between what we look for for our competition and for the rest of the programme, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, well, the thing I always say... Um, to students uh, is that principally what we're looking for is integrity and um, originality on some level and by integrity I I just mean um, a a short film that's that isn't you know a a trailer for a feature or or a scene from a feature or or, uh, a feature in miniature you know and it and it it, sort of it's grappling with the specific properties of short film, whatever they are. And then originality, I just mean in terms of, you know, it's doing something fresh with form. Um, what I've found, I'm getting more interested in recently is films that, um, this is gonna sound really pretentious, but but films that sort of find their purpose in the making of them, <laughs> which is a really I've horrible sentence. I've noticed that you've included that recently in our in our festival introduction yeah but i quite like it i quite like because i understand what you mean with it but it's hard i also understand that it's hard to explain but it's in the same way that when we talk to people about formal invention or, or even different ways of approaching narrative or storytelling i think a lot of people don't necessarily know what we mean and mm. sometimes i find that hard to put into word because i know it when i see it mm. which is obviously of no use <laughs> to anyone yeah the the art of the short film medium is that it works that it does something more interesting because of the limitations it has mm. versus you know more commercially suited forms but um i guess then it's also about whether you know whether we want to address that we show quite you know we sh- we show straight narrative fiction work and documentary work but then alongside that we show quite a lot of 
artist moving image or experimental or, or animation work and I think those are then completely different again as well mm. um, in terms of what our criteria would be. Yeah, and I suppose that's also what, what I find it hard when, when filmmakers ask about it because it's a lot of the time it's, you know, they can't preempt what our selection process will be or what our mm. what a long list will look like. While this idea of what film we want and what film we like is the first thing, then these ideas of like length and theme and yeah, and style yeah, and, and, and what speaks to each other, what kind of dialogues you can create between them. Yeah, yeah. So it's an organic process, isn't it? And 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 because of that, you know, it, we don't want to kind of rule out films as well. Like, so I've just been talking about straight narrative, but but actually, you know, we do show sort of formally conventional works as well but but in the context of of the program as a whole you know um films that work um together i think we are also a bit different than maybe some other festivals in that we don't set out with a very particular theme or festival framework in mind per year Mm -hmm. and so we do tease out things quite naturally Mm. So I, I might have something that I start off on, but then the what I see pop up and, you know, I might have a theme that I'm interested in exploring that year based on some stuff I've seen throughout the year. But then a lot of the time when I then start looking at what comes in through the submissions and the competition, that sort of informs mm. other research I'll be doing as well. Mm-hmm. Or what I might put into a, cu- a very, you know, considerately curated program that I still want to have some connection with yeah. what we're having in competitions. Yeah. So, and that's why our program always comes together at the last possible minute, yes, and we're does. in a mad panic and stressed. <laughs> stressed maybe out maybe in also February. because we're less organised than people <laughs> think we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I think what what is nice about that is that it just has. Like I know, obviously, how I go about that process for stuff that I would put together, and where I, you know, particular sources that I look for. for that I go to to look for films because I know that's where I often find stuff. But this is why it's really nice to involve other curators, obviously, because they have a yeah. completely different research approach yeah. um, or thing that they are interested in. Yeah. <laughs> in. But I think it is like, it's sort of when you look at, we don't have to go beyond it, but I think when you look at sort of the UK short film festival landscape mm. and we're all good pals and we all work together, but I think we all have like a particular identity. Yeah. Yeah, definitely within the UK, I think I think I think that's true. Um, yeah, what's our identity, then? <laughs> <laughs> I think this well, wasn't who called us at one point called us rebellious. I think at some point someone called us rebellious. Rebellious. I don't know. Oh um, no, but I think it is that that we do show slightly more. Not. Um, I don't think that's like the the bulk of the program but I think we show maybe more sort of formally inventive or, or experimental mm. work compared to some other short film festivals yeah, in the country. Yeah, but then we're not, you know, we're not at the kind of really experimental end of the, the spectrum. No, we're not, we're, no. we're sort of, yeah, um, we hope we're kind of relatively accessible. Um, but yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think for that kind of thing it's, it's so broad to explain that it is sort of mm. useful for people to look at what the programs are in different festivals because I think it yeah. does kind of come through quite quickly like what people what what festivals are kind of focusing on um well i suppose the one thing that, that occurred to me was that, uh, that we don't you know like our competition we, we've never claimed we've always tried to steer away from the word best 
um, these are the best films of the year because it's such a meaningless word anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it comes back to this sort of what you're saying about curating the the competitions is that that yeah we 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 turn away lots of really 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 strong films and we sometimes live to regret it. But um, um, we're just thinking about films that work together. Yeah, and well. I suppose on that, I don't know if, if we've really addressed that yet, but I think I suppose on that is also that like it's sort of the joy of of seeing potential in something mm. even if it's not perfect because yeah. you know I could again I think all, even even big important festivals have their own identities but I could say that I'm more often interested in for example what the shorts competition at Berlinale is but there would be no point in us just putting on all the films that are already mm. seen as the kind of best films on the festival circuit because there would be no the, the kind of purpose of nurturing new talent would sort of disappear in a way yes yeah and and increasingly there are other opportunities outside of festivals well the, you know there have been for a long time but more and more so that you can you can see all these films at some point online or whatever and, mm-hmm. and so it, there's no which kind of liberates us a bit because we don't feel any obligation to kind of show the all the award winners uh, of each year, that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah. So it lets us do our own thing. Yeah, <laughs> I think we can wrap up there. I think we can wrap up there. Cool. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> Come <Good>. to GSFS. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> that was great, wasn't that great? That was great. That was very interesting. Jamie, did you find that interesting? Yes, I did. Excellent. <laughs> And he, the same, I assume? Very much the Incredible. same. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, thanks very much to Matt and Sana from GF, GSFF for putting that together. Glasgow Shop Film Festival runs from the 23rd to the 27th of March. As Jamie said, all the films are great. Excellent curation. Big thumbs up from us. Doesn't work on audio. But these two <laughs> can confirm. Two thumbs up from me. That's what he's doing. Yeah, I just realised we should probably pr- promote our... Uh, partnered thing, the, the Kino Pravda thing. Yes, we should. The Skinny is uh, sponsoring one of the screenings at Glasgow Shop Film Festival, which is a screening called Kino Pravda, which, um, I don't know, Jamie, if you can tell us a little bit about. Yeah, it's basically um, a collection of newsreel that was uh, part of a series by... Ziga Vertov, who's the kind of great Soviet documentarian, and it's yeah, so it's it's sort of a, a sort of selection really of some of the programs he put together, um, of newsreel, um, which is going to be recontextualized a little bit because it's going to be given a new score by Jared Black. So Kino Pravda, that's on Friday the twenty fifth, eight forty five, and fifty percent of the ticket sales from. The Kino Pravda screening are going to the Support Filmmakers at War fundraiser that Babylon 13, who are a Ukrainian documentary film collective, they're running, they're running a fundraiser, 50% of the money from the GSFF screening is going to them. Okay, so before we go, because we're talking about GSFF, we're each going to talk about one short film that we particularly love. I've already spoiled what mine is, so Jamie go well this is quite a good one this week because also i discovered this filmmaker at glasgow short film festival it's uh, the swedish stop motion animator nikki lindroth 
Von Barr, um, and particularly her film The Burden, um, which I saw at uh, GSFF a couple of years ago. And, you know, this is, uh, I love horror films, but this is basically a musical which is set in this really kind of bleak urban retail park overnight, and it features all these kind of anthropomorphized animals, these workers who are doing these really dreary jobs. So it features sardines who run a kind of Premier Inn-style hotel, there's dancing mice who work at a burger joint, there's monkeys who work at a call centre, there's a dog who works at a supermarket, and basically there's just a really kind of sad, lonely bunch who are singing and dancing about their rubbish life. And it's a complete delight, and the level of detail in the animation is just mind-blowing, it's, it's, the design is incredible. Um, and, you know, if you're tickled by the idea of, like, Stardine's saying, staying in a primary hotel, wearing bathrobes and singing about how sad they are, you'll, you'll really enjoy this. Um, <laughs> so, it's, yeah, um, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, like, a Roy Anderson film. Like, uh, you know, they've definitely got the same sensibility, this kind of deadpan, uh, sad, serious, um, sort of comic, you know, tragic comic uh vibe yeah and it's just a delight um so yeah i would definitely check it out excellent do you know whereabouts one could watch it yes you can rent it um but you can also find this is actually unfortunately one of our films that isn't available for free but actually most of our films are available for free and i would say check them all out but you can rent this one just from her website i believe okay good stuff uh Anahi, what is your pick to recommend to people so I would like to recommend Anya Sparda's um, Black Panthers, which is a um, short documentary that she made in the 1960s about the Black Panther Party. I just love everything that Anya Sparda does, like everything. She's so good. And she shoots with such intimacy all the time. Um, and her short films in particular are really beautiful because they're so contained. Um, and it actually works so well here like thinking about it in comparison to some of her other short films which have a more natural I suppose like tendency there's one where she's like um filming a reunion with like a long-lost uncle and like things like that but to kind of bring that intimacy to such a sort of very um explicitly political milieu I think is just works so well and is so bold um I think documentaries obviously always have like these latent power dynamics of like who is doing the documenting and who is the documentary subject. And she navigates that really well. It's profoundly political. Um, it's told entirely from the Black Panther's pers perspectives. And it doesn't at all like equivocate or try and present what's happening as this sort of objective, historical, political moment. It's very explicitly anti-police. Um, it's very explicitly talking about structures um, and institutions, which, yeah, is just a conversation that we clearly still need to keep having. Um, and there's, it's kind of sad in a way how well it has aged, but it has aged <laughs> very well. Um, there's also like real joy to the way that she shoots. Um, a lot of it kind of, there's a lot of music and she really like concentrates on people's faces and yeah, these small kind of everyday moments and like gestures between them. Um, and like that blend of that and protest is really beautiful. There's like a really, really sweet moment where Kathleen Cleaver is talking about the natural hair movement. Um, and she asks kind of the person behind the camera if they don't think that it's beautiful and they say yes and then kind of these women are like laughing and it's just such a beautiful microcosm of yeah the sort of joy and the futurity that the Black Panther Party were like striving towards and I think 
a real demonstration of how good Varda was at navigating like when her voice and her presence were necessary and when they weren't and yeah like get very much giving her subjects the space while like guiding you through it um yeah it's just stunning and it's just yeah this kind of gorgeous 1960s grain oh my god it's just so beautiful so yeah I would recommend that but also any Anya Svada short ever and I think Black Panthers is currently on Mubi so you can just click play and uh so my pick for short films. I was thinking about this when we were talking about this initially. I was like, what makes a good short film? Uh, you want it to be uh, brisk, fairly concise. You want it to not feel like a downgrade on a feature film. And you want a couple of good characters who you can really kind of get on board with and then maybe they interact with some other people but it focuses on a kind of central dynamic. And the film I'm talking about is Wallace and Gromit, The Wrong Trousers. Yes. Which... <laughs> I I have loved for many a year and it honestly only gets better the more and more I watch it. So for anyone who doesn't know, Wallace and Gromit, UK claymation double act. Wallace is an inventor who has various kind of like slightly hair-brained and like very kind of playful, often quite like superficially practical but extremely impractical in practice inventions like breakfast making machines that might accidentally throw jam hot jam at your face um or the titular wrong trousers which seem like a good idea until someone points out that there's a remote control that you don't always have for them uh, and wallace lives with gromit who is his incredibly kind of preternaturally clever dog who plays very much the straight man to Wallace's, like, bumbling, oafish, uh, northern English idiot. Um, and in The Wrong Trousers, they come up against a penguin who has just got out of prison, I believe, and is uh, is set to do a jewel heist at the local museum. <laughs> if you're not sold already, I don't know what to tell you. But it's just centered on the dynamic between these three characters, because... The penguin moves in with the inventor and his dog and then tries to kind of like insert himself into their life in these kind of really hilarious things with like redecorating bedrooms and he's like up till all hours of the night doing like suspicious DIY. So it kind of ticks that box of being like, it's quite a small story, but it doesn't feel like the stakes have been downgraded. I think it's partly because it is claymation animation. You can just do really absurd, weird things and just have it seem like the most natural thing in the world. You've already got a man in like a cable knit tank top who talks to a dog. Why not also have a penguin that robs banks and wears a glove on his head so people think he's a chicken? It all kind of culminates in one, when you think about it, quite long chase sequence between a set of mechanical trousers, a penguin who has a gun by this point, and a dog trying to pilot a train set around what must be the world's largest living room. Just when you actually think about the spatial geography of it. like. <laughs> but yeah, it is just so much fun. The claymation style just means it feels so full of... like You can feel that every frame someone has had to meticulously work on. And it's... They made feature films with Wallace and Gromit, and I don't think they work as well, because I think it's about the dynamic between the two of them, and then they get themselves into kind of 
a scrape. You know, they go to the moon and then they bump into an old fridge that's really angry at them, but then it's all right once it learns how to ski. You know, <laughs> a close shave, they bump into the woman who runs the wool shop. Oh, but it turns out she has a robotic dog. And just being able to do these kind of like silly, quite overblown things, but on that really small scale. Oh, it's good. Isn't it good, Jamie? Although, but oh, yeah, it is good, but I'll take issue. Custom Wear Rabbit's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's not just the short films, all Walt Disney films are good. So, I just wonder, are they going to stop making them now? Because, obviously, Peter Salas is not, no longer with us. Do they have, like, another one? Or is that, do they have, no, they have another chicken run. There's, like, another Ardman animation yeah. something happening. So, there's a, I think there is a new Walt and Gromit actually coming on right. BBC and Netflix. Oh, that's nice. And, uh, yeah, Chicken Run 2 without Mel Gibson. I will say, if anyone um, has not previously Googled Baby Gromit. Now is the time to do that. There's nothing about the film. Have you not seen this? No, I haven't. <gasps> oh my god. Oh, wait. I don't want to fuck up my mic. Duck! I'll just Google it. Just yeah, now. Google it. Okay. <laughs> Baby Gromit. It's so cute. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With the handlebar moustache on Wallace as well. <laughs> Delightful good. stuff. Yeah, so Wallace and Gromit. The Wrong Trousers is kind of intermittently on and off the BBC iPlayer because it was a BBC thing when it came out in the 1990s. So if it's not on there now, it might be on there at some point in the future. But as uh, Jamie pointed out to me earlier, it's always on at Christmas. So if you just watch the BBC at Christmas, solid advice for a film podcast that comes out on, I believe, the uh, the 17th of March. (laughs) So that's one for your diary. Another one for the diary is we'll be back in two weeks. Smooth. Uh, Yeah, next time we're going to review another great film involving some sequences on a train, which is uh, compartment number six. And we're going to talk about our favourite films on trains. We're going on the road, but not literally. Uh, (laughs) We are staying. (laughs) We are staying exactly where we are. Um, So yeah, thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Anahit. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Uh, yes, if you enjoyed the podcast, then leave us a five-star review, whether that's on Spotify or Apple. Tell your friends. Um, pass this link around to other people. You can follow all of us on Twitter at Anaheat Ruse, Jamie Dunn, Esquire, and Peter Simpson, No Vowels. You can follow The Skinny at The Skinny Mag. Glasgow Short Film Festival runs from the 23rd to the 27th. Thanks again to Matt and Sana for helping out with this week's episode. The Worst Person in the World is out on the 25th of March, and it's on Mubi in May. And anything else, Jamie? Don't know why I'm looking at you. I think you've said it all. It's, it's time to wrap up. Lovely stuff. All right, cool. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.